0: The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, number 147, take two, for Monday, March 31st, 2008.
1: Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab. We've got a lot to go through and not a lot of time, so uh, we figured we'd speed things right up. Hi, John, how are you? (laughs)
0: Let's not go at that pace throughout the entire show. No, we can't go great. Hi, Dave.
1: Hi, John. How are you? <laughs> okay, let's slow let's things slow down. down here. So we have uh, we have actually a lot of stuff to go through. Obviously, we've got a huge backlog of your questions, and we're going to try and get to some of those today. Uh, John and I have also both been through some uh, some tales of woe and, and interest, so we're going to talk about some of that stuff, uh, various things covered. We're going to talk about airport speeds, Air disk backups because I know that's a sensitive topic here, and we've got some interesting info on that. Uh, believe it or not, from Pilot Pete, and uh, then uh, we'll talk about uh, some programming stuff. And yes, I know lots of you have asked about it. I will revisit. We will revisit our uh, our podcast setup briefly here to answer some questions about the way we're doing things. Uh, how we yeah, make the sausage, I'm, as it were, because I'm, I'm buttery. <laughs> you, you are buttery. At <laughs> least you sound. Someone said that, that way. and. and in
0: audio circles i guess that's good. Mm.
1: I think that's true. All right, so you have a a story to tell us John. So why don't you go ahead and uh and and tell us about uh, your your buddy's macbook fan.
0: Okay. So yeah, so a couple of tales of woe but they they lead i think to some good uh, troubleshooting tips and just, you know, interesting little things. So this was when i was on vacation with my friends uh Josh and Abby I, you know. Uh, sorry, sorry I John. Hard.
1: I you know, i went to take off my uh, my 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 sweatshirt here and i figured i'd mute my mic. I muted your mic. So uh, you, you were on vacation with your friends, Josh and Abby, and that's right where I uh, I muted you. So continue, please. <laughs> okay. And, uh, of course, you know, you and I got our machine
0: in time, so I had the MacBook Pro. He has a MacBook. And the one thing that we noticed, um, so, you know, a lot of times I go over to their apartment, um, and uh, they had wireless. You know, we'd punch in the key and all that, and we, we'd connect. But his machine was always running the fan, and I thought that was really weird. I mean, it's a MacBook um, he wasn't running a lot of stuff, you know, maybe Safari and maybe doing some iTunes, uh, you know, here and there, but an email, but nothing that was really munching in the processor. I'm like, that's really strange. So one thing we thought, because it, in the case of a lot of Macs, the, the Mac case itself radiates heat. So if you put the Mac on a blanket and the, you know, they'll, they'll warn you about this. I, I don't think it'll hurt the machine, but it will make it run hotter because it's just missing a surface in which to radiate heat. And if you put a blanket or, or even your lap, I guess, you're, you're insulating it. Um, so anyways, we're like, oh, well, let's put it instead of on the counter, which is where it was, let, let's put it up on some, you know, like bottle caps, plastic bottle caps. I thought that was a pretty clever idea, actually, but it didn't really help. And then we're like, okay, now we got to break out the big guns here. So let's get menu meters. Got menu meters. And we noticed that on either one of the other cores, there'd be something that was taking up a hundred percent. And I'm like, well, that's because looking at what the machine was doing, that made absolutely no sense to me. So through menu meters, you would fire, back, fire up activity monitor, and I didn't see anything. Of course, then I noticed, and I guess it, it depends, um, but activity monitor defaulted to my processes. Now, if you really want to get into the guts and find out what's going on, you probably want to click on all processes as far as what to show. Yeah. And we saw this little ditty called um, Print Job Manager. I'm like, hmm, okay, let, let me utilize my you know, keen analytics skills and think that it has something to do with a print job, okay? <laughs> yeah, I'll back you up on that, sure. <laughs> so I'm like, hmm, you know, this machine may have been, you know, packed up in a hurry, and, and we didn't have a lot of the peripherals and stuff, and I think you may see where I'm going with this. Yep. Um, we didn't have a lot of the peripherals. Uh, he did bring an external hard drive, but, but not a printer. So go to System Preferences, Print and Fax, and clicked on the printers that were listed. It's a slightly different procedure now in Leopard. And I saw the print queue for, I think he had a Canon printer, and I I double-clicked on it, and there was a print job just sitting there, uh, trying desperately to print to the printer that was not there. And because of that, and I don't know if it's Canon or Mac OS, I, I found a lot of articles which seemed to point the finger at Canon or their driver, but this machine was just trying and trying to print to a printer that was never going to respond because it wasn't there. It was back in in their apartment in New York. So... Killed the print job. Everything settled down. Everything was great. So that was Fascinating. just. It was just weird here. And I think we mentioned it in the past, but sometimes print drivers are stupid in that they don't realize that the device that they need to talk to is
1: not there. And that's so really this, bizarre. I, I mean, I, I, it makes total sense. It's just bizarre that the thing wouldn't do that. When, when you were when you started telling the story, I thought for sure I knew what it was because I'd seen a, a process called Airport D. Uh, do exactly the same thing. Try to connect to an airport network. I get connected, but yet airport D is spiraling out of control, uh, doing the same kind of thing and, and you know, heating up the processors and all that stuff. And what airport D does, at least according to its man page, is uh, configures various wireless card parameters automatically uh, connects to a preferred wireless network after a restart, etc., so and quitting that process always has solved that issue. So I, I totally thought that's where you were going. And obviously it was it was something completely different. But but equally as bizarre.
0: Yeah. So I guess in general, you know, keep print jobs, either let them finish or get rid of them. Don't let them sit there because the consensus, I think, is just with certain print drivers, it just it choose processor for no reason. Mm-hmm. So that was one thing. And then the second came up when you and I were talking um you know, before the show a couple of weeks ago, and you're like, well, John, go to your library folder in your home folder. And I'm like, it's not there. And of course, you took a double take saying, it has to wrong? be there, John. <laughs> it must be And there. then you were, and I'm like, hmm, you know, this is really interesting. So let, let's look. So I, I fired up the terminal and, you know, I did a, you know, it opens up, I think, usually in your home directory, I did a directory and library is there. I'm like, Huh? You know, I do an ls. I mean, just the fact that it's there means it, it's not invisible, right? Or is it? But it, it can't be seen by the finder. So, so I, you know, a great sigh of relief, and that my library directory did not go away. Because actually, if it did, I mean, how how would your machine even work? Oh yeah, you'd be totally horked. So it was there, and then I'm looking. You know, so I do an ls. You know, dash l does a you know detail directory listing. I'm just looking at the you know the flags and stuff, and nothing pops out as being unusual about the library directory. I'm like, hmm. You know, I even fired up Time Machine and and went back to the, the first backup and the library folder wasn't there either. I'm like, okay, well, it's there and I saw everything inside of it. So I'm like, it has to exist. There must be a problem with the Finder. But the problem is that if you do the typical get info, you don't see an invisible flag. And, and so I did a big digging and uh MacFixit a very nice summary, which I think still applies for the most part to, to the current OS. I think it was written you know, a little while ago, but I think the, the fundamentals are still there. Sure. There are three ways to make a file invisible under OS X. The first, which a lot have seen, and if you're a Unix person you know this, you put a dot or a period before a file. If a dot or a period is before something, it will not show up in a normal directory listing or in the finder. Right. Um, of course, if you do a ls dash, I guess it's uh, a uh, within the terminal, then you will see things with dots before them. But if you just do an ls, those things will not show up. So it wasn't the case of it being invisible. So that's one way to hide files. Another, and I think this is a legacy thing, is that, that there's a directory called .hidden um, maybe a directory called talk hidden, but, but but it sounds like a, a deprecated you know method you don 't want to use, but if a file appears in that directory or that file, then it will be invisible and the third thing, and this is where you either need help from people that make third party utilities or you can get the developer tools so the easy way to do it, and I found two utilities that pretty much did you know accomplish the task, task. one is file examiner from Gideon Softworks, and another is Super get info from Barebones. And both of them, when you drag a file on top of them, they will show you all sorts of additional information and also make it a little easier sometimes to set permissions. So it's, you know, it's like get info plus. But um, file examiner, i looked at the library folder and lo and behold, the invisible flag was checked. So I unchecked it. Voila. Well, actually, another way that I saw that is I used... um, cocktail and they have one setting buried somewhere i don't have the exact path well we'll have it in our notes um but they have a thing saying show all files and that was another thing and that's where i thought it was weird is that it when i said show all files it'll show invisible files and right. the library is invisible so basically file examiner from gideon was able to solve the problem by unchecking that box and it appeared so that's one way to do it um, for using a share utility the other is you know if you're okay with the nastiness of the uh, command line is the developer tools in developer slash tools there's something called set file and if you run set file from the command line um, there's a way to set and clear the invisible bit on any file um, So those are the three ways that files are invisible. And in this case, it wasn't a showstopper at some level. And I think, Dave, you actually recommended when we were in the Finder, and this made me feel a little better too. If you go to the Go menu and then Go to folder, and I typed in the path of the folder, I guess, you know, tilde slash uh, library, it showed up. Yep. So a very weird thing, but, you know, using some, uh, you know, (laughs) turning on the uh you know uh geek in my inner geek i was able to dig down because it was just (laughs) bothering me i'm like there has to be a
1: way to do this so that's really bizarre how did but the question still remains how did the invisible bit get set i mean this is a a relatively new machine of course you did a migration to it but still i mean (laughs) that's very bizarre it's very strange
0: I don't know if it was the migrate, but because, as I mentioned to you, I looked in the time machine backup, and from the first time machine backup, that file, uh, that had the bit set, so I don't know if it was just a little hiccup in the, you know, or I could have had a a reboot and a crash, and just, you know, that particular random bit, you know, when the machine was acting up, got cleared, and, uh, or set, no, cleared, and, uh. But anyways, yeah, it had me concerned for a bit because you, you, frankly, I think thought I was, you know, starting to lose it. <laughs> yeah,
1: I'm like, dude, it's right there. in front of you. Don't you see it there? Yeah. Well, who knows? Uh, okay, so th- let's talk about some more invisible stuff. Uh, I I did some I, I did some speed testing with uh, the airport, the eight hundred two point eleven n stuff this weekend, and during my testing, I, I wanted to make sure I knew how the airport card was connected to the to the base station i mean i knew it was connected to my uh, time capsule and i knew that i had the time capsule in five gigahertz you know n mode but i i just couldn't i, I there was no way to say well you know what symbol rate is it or sig- symbol rate signal rate symbol rate i think What you know how is it connected and i wanted to know if i was connected at full 270 megabits right uh symbol rate not throughput symbol rate And so I found that if you go up and you go to your little airport uh, icon in the menu bar and option click on the icon, you'll get more info below the network that you're connected to. You'll get the MAC address of the uh, base station. You'll get the channel that you're on. You'll get get a listing called uh, uh, our entry called RSSI, which John is.
0: Oh, receive signal strength indicator or something. But I think it's uh, as as the uh, like I'm looking right now, mine's negative 48. And I believe as it gets less negative, it's stronger. So, okay, I believe I'll I'll have to try it out. But uh, don't be scared that it's negative, that it does make sense.
1: Yeah. okay. And then uh, and then below that is the one I was looking for transmit rate. So I got my uh, my MacBook Pro set up so that it was. All set at the, uh, you know, the, the 270. It was close enough to the base station to where it, it, and you'll see this number change as you move around. The further you move from the base station, uh, or the more interference you have, the, the lower the transmit rate will get. But I was at 270, and then I used our favorite tool, IPERF, I-P-E-R-F, uh, to do some Straight throughput testing. Copying files isn't good enough, especially over a, a like a gigabit connection, because many times, you know, FireWire drives won't go gigabit. They'll go maximum four or eight hundred and many times less than that, depending on the speed of the drive. So iPerf is great for truly testing the throughput of a network. And uh, as I mentioned, I set up gigabit from the house to the office. And so I've got full gigabit running here and actually getting about nine hundred thirty Uh, megabits per second which i think is actually it's pretty good considering that there's a you know cable buried underneath the ground and everything so uh but anyway i I saw in my testing i saw about 112 115 megabits a second when i was connected 270 now that's wireless to wired and you set up iperf on one machine as a a server You, you run it from the command line iperf space dash s and it just sits there and waits for a connection and then from the other machine, you do iperf space dash C for connect or client a space and then the address of the, the IP address of the computer you're connecting to. And it does a 10 second burst test. You can, of course, configure it to do more or less than that. It does a test and then comes back and tells you, yep, here's how fast it went. So I was seeing about 112 connecting wireless to wireless. I don't have two wireless end devices here, so I could not fully test that. But I've been told Glenn Fleischman mentioned uh, via Twitter that it was about uh, he was seeing about ninety, uh, so it, you know it, it, all sorts of things that that factor into that. Obviously, the two wireless uh, uh, the two wireless devices both competing for the same bandwidth, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, but saw that, that thought that that was interesting. Another thing I found: if you want to force your time capsule, and I, I had to do this while I was down in Austin. Um we had a MacBook Pro down there in our office that when it connected N, uh, it would just drop off the network constantly. There's something wrong with the card. It was happening back. Uh, it was Jeff Quistad's uh, MacBook Pro, and it was happening at his house, too, with a Belkin router, and he had to force the Belkin router to do G, and then it was fine. So we, f- we figured, well, we better force the time capsule to do G so that the guy can work. And... It wouldn't. If you look in the radio mode, I think right when you go into airport utility, you go to wireless tab and go to radio mode and and there is no option for that. There's BG compatible, but it's still doing N. Uh, Well, if you hold down the option key and look in that list, well, a whole lot more options appear. And one of them, of course, is not N, just G and, and that worked just fine. So the option key can really be your friend with a lot of stuff. John, I think you found something with the Bluetooth menu as well, right? Oh yeah for kicks
0: uh, on on uh, my MacBook, I have the airport and the Bluetooth because every now and then i uh I've been having a little difficulty setting up getting my my stuff that worked on the old machine working on the new machine, but that's uh for another show okay but anyways, if you click on that, and you hold down alt or option yeah. Uh, It's the PC guy in me that says it's all. But you will see a version number, which I assume is of the Bluetooth driver, and you will see a name of your device, which is always good to know. Yeah. Since you may not know it off the top of your head. So um, those are some extra goodies. And I guess in general, that's the key where if you're, you know, you just have a lot of time to kill and you just want to run around clicking on things to see if there's any extra goodies, then I guess, uh, as Dave said, that's uh, that's the key to do it with. So uh, for those with lots of time, let us know what you find.
1: All right. So... Uh another thing that's come up this week is the whole issue of airport base stations, the airport extreme base station. Uh there was an update to time machine, there was an update to the time capsule and there was an update to uh, airport and the airport extreme base station firmware. And the combination of these updates turned on a feature whereby time machine without any terminal trickery, I believe, will see the air disk. Uh as 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 a, as a backup destination. Now, previously, you could force it to see uh, network drives that weren't supported, i.e., not drives connected to either a Time Capsule or a uh, or a Leopard machine. By and I'll and I'll state this here, and then we'll we'll link to it. But the command is defaults space right terminal command. Start at the beginning again. Defaults space right space com dot apple dot system preferences space and then. TM Show Unsupported Network Volumes Space One. And that TM Show Unsupported Network Volumes has T M and then S, U, N, and V capitalized. You'll want to see this online before you type it in. But anyway, uh prior to that, you could type that command and see your air disk. Now uh it would just magically appear after this new update, and everybody thought, oh great, finally Apple has turned this back on for all of us to use. Um can I just want to make sure I heard you right, Dave.
0: Okay. Did, did you say the word unsupported? That's right.
1: Okay. All right. Just want to make sure. Go yeah. on. Yeah, that's right. So, <laughs> yeah, but, but that was previously. Now you don't have to type that command in order to get it to see it. So, uh, it presumably is a supported device. At least that's what time machine believes. Well, uh, pilot Pete, I knew had an airport extreme base station and, uh, and he, uh, and so I, I, you know, called him up and I said, have you tried this? Because I knew he wanted to do this. And, uh, and he says, no, you know, I'm not seeing it. And then he realized he hadn't updated his firmware. So he goes and he updates his firmware. He says, oh, yeah, here it goes. The backup's starting. And then maybe 20 minutes later, he comes to me. He's like, yeah, it failed. And so I'll just start, try it again. And, you know, 30 minutes later, 40 minutes later, yeah, it failed again. Oh, it keeps failing. And, uh, and then finally, you know, he, he realized that what was happening And many others have reported this as well. There's a problem with the airport extreme base station where it drops out. The wireless connection just goes bye-bye for brief periods. So brief that you probably wouldn't notice it while surfing, but long enough to where it was interrupting these time machine backups. Now, I don't know if it's because in addition to it being a brief outage, the, the whole thing is kind of going offline and then coming back online or what. But it is causing these, these regular brief outages are happening at intervals uh, that are close enough together to interrupt that big, huge first uh, backup that you do with Time Machine. So uh, Pete, you know, and, and Pete's Slingbox has saved the day before, as you folks remember from our Macworld show. But uh, Pete figured, well, if I force the connection to stay alive by streaming the other direction, maybe that'll help. So he streamed from his, his Slingbox, which effectively is connected via ethernet to the airport base station streamed it from uh from the sling box to the mac that he was backing up and just had that live stream going then started the backup lo and behold 55 gigs or something went through without a hitch subsequent incremental backups have been fine but of course they're very short and small so there's not that big long extended burn uh that that needs to happen so It is possible to get this done. There is something wrong with the airport extreme base station. And it's a pretty widespread thing. We've heard from a lot of you listeners about it. Uh, It's not just Pete. And of course, it beyond uh, the folks listening to this show, there's many, many people reporting this out on discussion boards and such. So, Hopefully Apple will address this, not just because a time machine, but because a base station shouldn't do this and the time capsule doesn't do this. So obviously there's there's some disconnect there and hopefully now they'll realize it and, and get to work on Yeah, uh, on uh,
0: They'll they'll just delete all the messages and pretend the problem doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they've been known to no. do that. Uh, in the past, I think the old Apple did that. But, um, anyways, yeah. So, I have one point, which is, you know, why I, I was kind of asking you that question before. Is uh, to me, it sounds like it may have been a a little hiccup in in a, a software update or something where they accidentally. And this is where, and we're going to talk a little more about software. But, um, you know, a lot of times when you develop big projects, you have something called a version control system, which will make sure that you're always putting together, or, or it makes it so that you can put together a piece of software made up of other pieces of software in a consistent manner. Now, yeah, I don't know if just it wasn't tested, but it sounds like somebody accidentally enabled that bit for what, you know, as we observed is a, you know, kind of fidgety, unsupported feature. Um, The only thing I mentioned, too, is that I've noticed this a lot, Dave, with Leopard and with Tiger sometimes, especially if I have a portable hooked up On a network drive that has disappeared, sometimes it gets really, almost like the printer thing, it gets really, really confused that, you know, it'll even sometimes pop up a a window saying, you know, disconnect network volume. And you're like, yeah, and it's just, you you get the beach ball of death. And I don't know if you've run into this or it's just me, but sometimes I've seen uh, unusual behavior if a network drive disappears when another machine doesn't expect it. It doesn't gracefully say okay it's gone it's done we're, we're gonna shut down and uh it sounds like you've run into that too so yeah
1: absolutely yeah and uh, and pete <laughs> he's not here with us because he's uh he's actually out of the country working but uh but had decided you know he just couldn't miss out on a geek ev, so pete is actually listening in on skype here and just chimed in that he was getting a lot of that while uh well, his airport base station was cutting out because he was connecting to a network drive attached to it, an air disc attached to it. And he would constantly get that. And I, I've seen that, too, here. Yeah, it's 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 not isolated to you, John. Yeah.
0: OK, so if anybody uh, has looked into this further, please,
1: please, um, you know how to get in touch with us, do they, Dave? You know what? Thank you. I, had, I keep meaning to put this in our, <laughs> in our show agenda and I always forget. Yeah. OK, so here's how you reach us feedback at macgeekgab.com right that's that's the first way uh you can uh skype us at macgeekgab and that'll get right to us and then you can also call and the number john is 206-666-geek which is 4335 all of those ways reach us please Please call. We love to hear from you. I I I say that now. I spent four hours this afternoon going through all of your email and notes and and voicemails, uh, and I'm happy to do it. it. It's it it it's actually very humbling to to know that we've got all of you folks listening and and contributing to the show. It, it would not be the same without you. And uh, and that leads us right into some new questions. But the other folks for whom our show would not be the same are our sponsors. And uh, Audio Engine USA is our sponsor for this show. Uh, they have the audio engine W1 which is a USB uh, transmitter and a USB receiver and what happens is you plug the transmitter into your mac and it registers itself as an audio device so instead of telling iTunes to send sound out to your speakers you tell it to send sound out to this device the audio engine W1 then on the other end you have uh the counterpart that receives the audio signal from this, you plug it into your speakers. Now if you were plugging it into the Audio Engine speakers, they have USB power so you can just plug this right in. It's got a little USB port. Otherwise, it comes with a little power adapter and you plug the power adapter in and then you plug this little thing into your speakers. It's got a little headphone jack and you can of course use adapters to get it to whatever you want. You could hook it up to your stereo. Two very cool things about this. One that they one that they advertise and one that I've stumbled upon. The one that they advertise is that uh The machine, the the way that the uh, transmission works, it's happening in real time. So if you have a movie playing on your Mac screen, the sound comes out of your speakers in sync with the movie. That's pretty cool. That's kind of magic, if you ask me, being able to get that to work consistently. That's pretty cool. The other thing is you're not using the onboard uh, D to A converters on your Mac. So you actually are getting a lot less noise uh, in the audio signal than you would be. If it was uh, on your Mac, so you've got a a much quieter, cleaner signal, full CD quality sound blasting out to your speakers remotely or, you know, right next to your Mac, if you like. That's the AudioEngineUSA.com W1, $149 available today. And now we have a question from Chris if the computer downstairs didn't go to sleep again, and I think it didn't. So here we go.
2: Hey John and Dave, this is Chris from Provo, Utah. I might just have a quick question about programming. Um, I'm a, a biology student at Brigham Young University, but I've been a Mac geek since I was about six years old and I'm trying to figure out what can I do, I'm about to graduate in April and so I'm wondering what can I do to get started on my own without taking any official classes um, to learn how to program for the Mac. Um, this is probably where you're going to cut me off right
1: we will cut you off. Uh, and, and John will answer this question because, of course, he, he, Provo and Utah are two of our, our favorite places. So go ahead, John. They are? Well, they, they were. Yeah. Fletch was a popular movie in, in my household. So. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I'm going to uh, let
0: me start here. So I've been programming. I actually like I think Dave also I taught myself. Back, you know, when we had Apple IIs and even even machines before that. So I taught myself BASIC because that was really about it. Um, unfortunately, a lot of people acknowledge that BASIC teaches you horrible habits, especially if you're into, <laughs> you know, structured programmings and object oriented and all that fun stuff. Um, but it's all we had. And so a lot of us would just, you know, uh, so I'm going to give a general Guideline if you want to learn to, to program now you could do like i've done in the past i've done what's you know known as embedded programming it's usually done in c it's very low level um, i don't think you want to start there to me to really you know get the seed planted for you to get excited about programming and developing, I would really recommend, and I don't think, although Xcode is free, and Xcode is the Apple's tool development environment, it's free, it has, you know, a lot of languages, a lot of modes, lets you do a lot of things, but I really prefer, some people will shake their fist at me, a visual environment, like either real basic, which is nice because it's Mac and Windows and, and also uh, Linux. Um, or Microsoft, the Visual Studio, especially Visual Basic. The the reason that I, I point to visual environments like this is that I think it's important for you to be able to develop a user interface quickly, and that's one skill that I think is lacking in a lot of cases, is how do you make a UI? I mean, you know, programming to me is not just nuts and bolts and in interacting with the hardware. It's developing an interface that a normal person can use. So... I have two reasons for suggesting a visual tool. But the other thing is that a lot of times when you get one of these visual tools like Real Basic or um, uh, something like that, is that you you typically lay out a form with the fields, you know, buttons and and menu bars and all the things you're used to seeing. And then you describe the actions behind them. Um, But the thing is that I found in these environments, especially if you have examples available, and I would say in any case, whenever you're learning how to develop you will find unless you're doing a bleeding edge language i don't think you should do that you know learn c or java or something like that find examples Other people have been through the pain. Unless you really like pain and you want to teach yourself by trial and error, which, you know, with today's computers as opposed to the ones of, of, you know, uh, days past where you had to submit a stack of cards, you can pretty much get instant feedback. So if you want to go through the pain and just keep trying until you get something that works fine. But uh, I would really recommend, and this is what I know a lot of, you know, my professional colleagues do get a sample, get a piece of code that works, and then build off of that. So so that would be my general recommendation. Number one, start with a visual environment so you can really get a feel and see the results of your actions. Number two, find a good source of samples. And, you know, especially with the internet, unlike, you know, back when you and I, Dave, were doing the, the bulletin board thing, it was really hard to, to, relatively hard to get your hands on this. Now it's it's so easy. Yeah. especially You know, also with developer programs, Apple, Microsoft, the the guys at Real Basic, all have developer programs. So You can join up with a community of people that are looking at the same things that you are. And of course, there's multiple books, way too many to mention. I mean, Dave and I regularly get, you know, titles to look at, to, to to help guide you. So, uh, you know, just find a decent bookstore. It'll probably come with a CD or something. You could download it, but, you know, if it comes with the book, you can go through it. But, you know, a visual environment, get samples, start from there um, is what I'd say. If you've got a user group or, you know, heck, if you got the dough, find a local tech college, take some basic computer science courses so you understand because uh, you don't want to be too undisciplined, though I don't know. I mean, some of these, you know, crazy like gaming programmers and all that, I think a lot of these people had no formal training and they can write stuff that you know, scares the pants off a lot of people. I don't don't know. So that is my lecture (laughs) or sermon on um, learning programming.
1: Preach on brother. That was great. That's, that's good stuff. I'll also throw in that once you've got your feet wet and have moved to Xcode, because I think at some point, if you're developing seriously for the Mac, uh, once you mm-hmm. once you've learned how to program and kind of gotten your mind wrapped around that, I think Xcode is probably a, a logical step at some point down that road. Uh, and once you're there or once you're ready to be there, uh, going to the, the WWDC, I think, would be a fantastic thing. All the, the seminars that they have there, the, the ability to talk to Apple directly to Apple engineers to test your code with Apple engineers, that kind of thing. Oh, sure it's huge i mean it's it's un, unparalleled access to these people that normally are behind you know a blast shield uh, really, really helpful. Now, I say that, of course, I, I'm trying to figure out my trip to WWDC, and I can't find a hotel room available in town. I don't know what else is going on. There's not enough people at WWDC to to lock up hotels. So, hopefully, I'll be there again this year. But I gotta, I gotta see if I can't call in some favors. Hey, I, I
0: got in. a place. Uh, maybe I stayed at when I was at one of the uh, the RSA conferences, yeah. which is one of those security conferences. It's about three long blocks. It's a, uh, it's in a, a heck. I made it through it, but no, it's it's far away because I got caught in a rainstorm. That's the only reason. Yeah. And it's in an area where, you know, there's, there's a, yeah, no, no big excitement. Just a lot of people on the sidewalks asking you for, you know, donations for,
1: uh, right. Whatever. For their lifestyle. (laughs) There you go. Could be worse. (laughs) Yeah. Could be worse. All right. Uh, yeah, I and mean, yeah, we've gotten that question from a lot of people. So I wanted to play Chris's uh, because, of course, Provo and Utah are two of our favorite places. But uh, but many people have written in with that question. So I wanted to address it. In fact, we've got a couple of things we're going to talk about in this show uh, that many people have asked about. Uh, and, and the next yeah. one, the next one is certainly uh, on that list.
2: Hi, um, I have a PowerBook DVI. That it the DVI version that is that it it won't quite have enough speed to install Leopard. Is there a way to install Leopard on a machine that doesn't meet the requirements of what Leopard says? Thank you very much. And I only have one Macintosh. I, I have another PC, but just just one Mac. And I love the show. Nope.
1: Okay. Uh, How dare you question Apple? They know what's best. Do they? They know what's best for their bottom line. <laughs> or. <laughs> cynicism bleeds out again. Uh, yeah, yeah. Or. That's right. There, there is a piece of software called, that, that we found called Leopard Assist. And it's available at SourceForge. We'll put a link in the show notes. Um the the cool thing about it, it actually tricks the open firmware into thinking that the machine is 867 megahertz. Uh, so you run this utility. You don't have to hack the, the DVD. You don't have to do anything. You download this. You run it. Presumably, it doesn't just, you know, brick your machine totally. Does its magic to the open firmware. You reboot with the Leopard DVD and boom. So you do have to have a machine that has a DVD drive. Uh, that obviously is a, a requirement that software cannot solve for you. But uh, but that that'll do it, I think.
0: Yeah, the only thing is that there is a reason Apple does. does. Uh, I would say for general day to day performance, you're okay. But do not expect iMovie or even iTunes or. Yeah. Things that start to really mop on the processor, you, you will be disappointed. I would say iMovie is probably the best thing because, you know, anything that does the audio or video transformation, that's when you need the juice and yeah. uh, you're not going to have it. So but but for day to day, you know, email and, you know, basic surfing, I
1: would say, yeah, give it a whirl. What do you got to lose? I, I'm tempted to put it. You know, we've got that that uh, G3 that ha- the blue and white G3 that's got a 450 megahertz G4 in it. Uh, G- I- oh, you got an upgrade? Yeah, it was a old PowerLogic's upgrade on the uh, the the blue and white G3, and it's got a gig of RAM in it, and it runs as our FileMaker server. But I, you know, I, as I've said, I had to run through all those hoops to to make uh, super duper backup to the time capsule, which was you know a cool exercise and all. But if I had Leopard on it, well, that wouldn't be necessary, would it? So I, I've thought about doing this, but the machine doesn't even have a DVD drive, and you know what? It's working now, so I think I'm just going to leave it alone. Uh, speaking of folder syncing ed writes in what is a good tool or application for auto syncing a single folder and its subfolders between two macs they're on the same network so that should make life easier one thing i've used in the past now you can do this with i believe carbon copy cloner actually makes it very easy to do this somebody wrote in just today to say that um you can also do it with super duper but you have to exclude everything and it still scours the entire drive um before it decides what to back up so this may that may not be the best tool but folder synchronizer from soft to be or soft tobe i'm not sure how they pronounce it uh will also do this so that's uh that's that's the other way do you, have you tried that with carbon copy cloner john
0: um no i've seen it their their interface yes has has been refreshed but no i've strictly and been very happy using it for full volume backups um so yeah i'll have to give it a whirl
1: yeah yeah okay uh and our our last question of the night comes from our everyone's favorite evil genius mr dave slusher
2: hmm Dave and John. I hope that this uh, Skype message comes in and is audible. This has been the doomed comment. <laughs> Everything I do uh, turns to dust on this. Um, I recently bought a new MacBook, and I got a couple questions. Um, very quick background. I had an iBook G4 that was running 10.3 out of the box, and I basically ran it that way for three and a half years. Um, about a month before I upgraded, I had a uh, upgraded to the MacBook. I upgraded that iBook to 10.4. When I did, the iBook did something funny in that every application now is whatever the name of it .app. It just explicitly says it's the .app for everything on there. When I got the MacBook, uh, I forgot to uh, some of your tips, and I didn't. I was not diligent enough to go back and re-listen to your episode where you talked about migration. I forgot to repair my permissions on the existing iBook. Used a migration assistant connected with FireWire. Uh, took a few hours. Um, it hung at the very end, and eventually I just had to pull up the cables and move on. Everything about it seemed kind of nice. I brought it up. You know, my account was there more or less exactly as I left it, um, including that weird problem where every application says .app. I created a second user on the MacBook, And it doesn't have that issue. And uh, that brought me to another question, which is, now that I've got all my stuff on the MacBook, in the account, the migrated account, am I actually losing anything by running in that account? Because it's more or less like my 10.4 iBook. Are there things I'm not getting, I guess is what I'm asking. And I almost wonder if it doesn't make sense to start over, create a new user, and then move the files from the one account to the other account as I find that I need them. Um, I want to know what your thoughts were on that. I mean, I, I kind of did the easy step where everything from the old computers on the new computer, and now maybe I just selectively bring, you know, libraries, iPhoto libraries and things over as I need them, knowing, secure in the fact that I know that all my stuff is on the computer somewhere. Um, and then the other question is, uh, I looked in the settings, power saving settings on this MacBook, and I cannot figure out why this happens. But if the battery gets low, and I don't put the charger in fast enough, the iBook used to sleep. And when I put the, uh, when I char- you know plugged the charger in, I could hit Return and it would come back up. As far as I can tell, this MacBook goes straight to power down when it runs out of battery. Doesn't hibernate or sleep or anything. Uh, when I plug it back in, the only thing I can do is r- at that point do a startup. Um, is that a setting or is that just how these macbooks are so again i hope skype is not flanging this is usable and we can put this comment to bed thanks guys
1: yeah you sounded fine dave you sounded just fine all right so uh, there's actually three questions here right john the the first one with the all dot app endings do we have an answer for that one
0: i think we do it's it's buried. Um let's see what what did you I think you found this. But uh oh what do we have finder preferences advanced show all file extensions. Um so apparently a bit got twiddled there uh during the transfer I guess because yeah normally I I've, I've never seen the .app at the at, at the end of things unless you uh, do an explicit get info. So I guess that's a uh,
1: that's question one. Yeah, why did one. that happen? Well, he's, he the, said it was happening prior as well, so maybe there oh, was. Oh, so it carried it over. Carried it all carried right. that pref over. Exactly, yeah. So Finder, uh, Preferences, Advanced, and Show All File Extensions. Uncheck that. Advanced. You should be good to go. Yeah,
0: Yeah, and that's one of those things that's, yeah, really, <laughs> really buried there. I, so, I had um, to Google for it. I couldn't find it. So, yeah, I, that's the only way. Uh, okay, number one, two, I think we may have a, hmm, well, I'll let you go on, but I, I think I may feel uh, different.
1: Okay, well, yeah, you know, I just did the manual migration to my MacBook Pro and could not be happier about it. Of course, I could also not be happier about the migration assistant thing that I did from the dual G4 to this uh, this new iMac here in the studio because it it literally was smooth like butter. Um, so there, there's benefits to both sides. I, I don't think you're missing anything, Dave, by by uh, by by living in your your migrated account. That said, you did migrate over stuff that you will never need. So at some point along your 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 Mac computing path, I think it does make sense to say, okay, you know what? Now's the time to migrate to a new account. I don't Mm -hmm. know if doing it the way you describe, though, is wise. And and I'll tell you why. It gets really tricky with permissions. Moving files from one user account to another on the same machine, uh, you'd almost be better off archiving that user account on onto another drive and then copying the files back that way, so that permissions get pulled in fresh, if you will. You know, mount a FireWire drive uh, that has permissioning disabled on it. Right, you know, don't track users and permissions on this volume. Copy the stuff over come back in as the other user and copy it back. That if you're going to do it, that's how I would do it. Otherwise, um, you know, at some point down the line, maybe do a carbon copy cloner cloner, or a, uh, 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 what's the other thing? The thing that I use super duper Do a super super-duper. duper bundle uh, of your whole drive to to a Firewire disk, then mount that on a new Mac and then copy the stuff over that you need. Um, I, so that that's my feeling. At some point, it makes sense to do it. I don't know that now is the time you don't really seem to be having any problems other than this this finder preference thing which presumably by now is gone because you've already gone and done it while you're listening so that's my feeling on it john yeah i would uh, uh, i've i've taken the approach especially
0: on the macbook pro would be to migrate and then start purging the things that Slowly, and, and I've been doing this, and, and everybody I guess should. You know, I've been looking at apps that are PowerPC only, and you know, could they be Intel or Universal? Um, yes, there are things available. And then also, just every now and then, we'll go through old preferences and stuff. And sometimes you'll see preferences from, a, especially on a migrated machine, that may be from five years ago, seven years ago. Gee, maybe that's an old app that I don't have anymore. So, So I'm more. You know, let a utility that that you assume knows what it's doing bring the stuff over, and then start going through with tools like, you know, the uh, System Info tool to to look at, you know, the status of your apps. Uh, again, on a on a MacBook, there are going to be some things classic that won't run. Duh, you either upgrade them or get rid of them; that they're doing no good. So, um, so I w- I w- I think I'm in agreement that you should, uh, yeah, be careful when you're bopping between accounts and and keep it to one account and. you're happy with it you know of course time machine will uh if you're running that will will take care of everything i hope
1: yeah yeah all right uh so the the, there's two separate schools of thought i I don't know and they're both basically the same right just you know don't don't drive yourself crazy if it's working if it ain't broke don't fix it or like we like to say in the uh computing realm if it ain't broke fix it till it is um Mm. no we don't like to say that but it is kind of fun uh that's how we learn all three. this stuff. Number 3. Yeah, the battery uh the battery issue I got to be honest, I think you've got a bad battery Dave. Uh I had that issue twice with my mm. first MacBook Pro where that would happen it would get down to 30% and just take a hard nose dive and that was it. Uh, and I called up Apple and they said, oh, yep, you've got a bad cell in your battery. You know, the battery's got eight cells and one of them is bad and it reports as though it's charged and it's not. And so we go to use it and done. Uh, and it, so if that's happening consistently, it, you know, I would try I try resetting power management and all that. But frankly, because your machine has just been dying, I don't think power management resets going to fix it. But it, it certainly wouldn't hurt to try it once Um Although it does hurt the machine to just have power yanked from it, so you do want to get this fixed before you uh, before you let this happen over and over and start building up directory damage and file corruption and all that stuff. So, that's my that's my thought. And Apple should replace that battery for you. So, mm-hmm.
0: John. Yeah, I like um, there's something called X Battery which shows you all sorts of info like the maximum capacity, for the most part, uh, current capacity, the charge, the voltage. And you may have to do a bit of digging, but if if what it reports is different. Now, I think what it reports is what's on the little chip. There's a little chip in the battery that tries to do smart things, but sometimes doesn't. So, yeah, if you have a blown cell, I'm wondering if you would see a, you know, lower reported voltage um, through something like X battery. Or if just you see what you see, which is, you know, (laughs) the machine shuts down unexpectedly. Which um, so I'm curious about that. If anybody's running into battery problems, uh, will a utility like X battery let you know that something's awry, like, you know, based on the voltage level or
1: something? Yeah. You know, to be honest, I did not use that when I had my issues. I so I don't know the answer. I just uh, I got frustrated and and called Apple and they sent me a new battery and I sent the mm-hmm. old one back. They, they, you know, was here the next day. All right. uh, Back to a question that seems to be it's always asked. We constantly get people asking us about our setup. And and for the most part, I refer everyone back to show number 32, where we talked about what we're doing here. And so I'm going to do that again. I'm not going to talk about the over nitty gritty. But I am going to talk about the general sense of what we do. When we set to do this show, there were a couple of parameters that John and I needed to hit. And one of those was that things needed to be, we needed to do no post-production. And that's simply because I know that my schedule is such that if I had to finish this show and then spend three hours uh, stitching it all together, I I wouldn't do it regularly. It would take days. Sometimes it would be a week. My schedule is just crazy. So I knew that when we, you know, hit the, hit, turned off the red light, I basically needed to have a file that was done and then I could convert it to MP3 for a while. We were actually recording to MP3, but Corey Cooper, who at the time was doing the OS Mac OSG podcast, steered us. Right. So we record to AIFF, then uh, convert to MP3 and send it up. So knowing that I needed to be able to mix the show live, I need to be able to hear everything. And we do, we do the show live. John and I just talked to you very, very rarely. Do we ever hit pause the iTunes? The, the comments are played via iTunes live. I start them and stop them. Uh, if I screw it up, I screw it up. Uh, as long as I don't let someone's uh, personal information, uh, uh, quote unquote, on the air, I don't go back and edit. It's, it, I can count on, the, on on one hand the number of times we've paused and edited together. It just doesn't happen. So knowing that, I was using Audio Hijack Pro, and I'll, I'll let the show number 32 speak to how we're, we're routing everything together, but I was doing it all digitally, And it worked fine, and I could adjust levels there, and Audio Hijack Pro is a very flexible tool, but it was driving me a little bit crazy to have to adjust things on the fly, if you will, uh, while using the mouse. So Mackie uh, sent us an Onyx 1220 board, and this this was quite a while back, before Show 32. We are using the same board that we talked about then. And it's a FireWire board, and it's got 16 inputs. I mean, it's got, well... It's got all sorts of stuff, but it it lets me plug microphones in and it's got faders on it so I can have uh, different faders for every channel and control things and hear it in my ears. And then uh, it it just sends a a two channel signal out to the back to the Mac. And that two channel signal is combined into a mono signal. And in it goes. So how do we do this? You ask, because John and I talk on Skype. Well, Audio Hijack grabs the Skype signal from John and John alone and sends it out. Uh, I used to have it sending out one of the uh, the left channel of the max output, and then I would connect that via a, an analog cable into one of the inputs on the mixer. So I've got a fader for John that's totally separate from everything else. I've also got a fader for me because my mic is plugged right in. Uh, and the same with iTunes. iTunes would go out the right channel, and I'd just go an analog cable right into the mixer. I've got a fader for iTunes, so I can control EQ and everything separately with knobs live right here in front of me. Well. To make things quieter, uh, this Mackie board does not have returns from the computers, so the only way to get sound in was to do it analog. Uh, I I got a, an FCA 202 from Behringer, which is a FireWire audio interface that's got two channels out, and so now I'm using that. John goes to one of them, the uh, iTunes goes to the other, and and then it's connected analog from the FireWire, the Behringer interface to the the Mackie, and out it goes. So that that's basically what we're doing. We have, we use outboard compressors, um, kind of middle of the road, uh, outboard compressors again from Behringer, the autocom pro XL. Uh, and I've got a couple of them here, one to manage iTunes and it noise gates, everything at noise gates, John, like you're not hearing John's background noise when I'm talking and you're not hearing my background noise when John's talking because we've got these noise gates. And then we use some audio compression to kind of tighten things up a little bit. So, uh, and then the mix goes dry and, uh, and then we add some reverb overall to the whole thing because John and I are in different environments. He is coming in over Skype and the reverb uh, makes it sound like we're kind of all in one place. And we, we try to apply it judiciously. Sometimes the knob gets tweaked a little too much and, and you know, it sounds like this. But uh, for the most part, we try to keep it pretty tame. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think that's it. I, that, that's it. We're both now finally on uh, on dynamic mics. John's on a on a high pr 40 just like me. And, uh, and, and that's really, I mean, that's it. It's all pretty, it's, it's buttery. It's buttery. So
0: there Someone, you go. And more than one of you wrote in saying, did John do something different? Yeah. Yeah. Cause I normally sound marvelous, but <laughs> <laughs>
1: mm. yeah. So like now what I've done is I pulled the iTunes fader down. I start up the, uh, the band and then I'll, I'll grab the iTunes fader and just slowly bring it in to the point where here's the band. Uh, High band. High band. So there you go. And it totally all separate controls. And I I like to be able to have my hands on it, especially because when we finish here, I've got an automator script that will convert it, uh, add the artwork, upload it with transmit. And uh, and then I publish the show and we're good to go. So,
0: yeah. You know, I'm unhappy. Are you now? Why are you unhappy, John? I'm looking at my MacBook Pro screen and I have my Samsung screen on my G5, and you know, gosh darn it, the the <laughs> the MacBook is—I don't even have it on. Ma- Do I have it on maximum? The screen is bright. I'm sorry. Bright. It, it, I'm comparing it, especially to the uh, yeah, my other machines. It's it's a nice screen.
1: Hey, hey should we pull the band out quick and and uh, and put this cash thing to bed? You know, Dave. Dave no. we, yeah, I think we I think we should just to, just to get this right. Uh, because I, I hate to have incorrect info out there for too long, Dave Reed wrote in uh, about our our uh, our discussion of level one and level two cash last week, and and I'm just going to read what Dave wrote uh, because I think he he nailed it right on. I cringed as I listened to Dave's description of cache in this week's podcast. It got a little better as John jumped in. The cache is not storing pre-computed values. It is storing the contents of some memory locations. The on-chip cache, level one, is typically split into two parts, an instruction cache and a data cache. The instruction cache stores the instructions, the contents of the memory locations that contained the instructions, but not the results. And the data cache stores the contents of memory locations that were recently read or written to to store the results that were computed. Since much of the computer code is a loop that is executed repeatedly, the instructions that were just executed are likely to be executed again. Also, when it brings a memory location into the cache, it also brings the locations around it, since if we just access one memory location, we're likely to access the memory locations after it. The level one cache executes at the same speed as the processor, so there's no delay if the memory location is needed is in the level one cache. The level two cache is large and usually unified, not split into separate data and instruction caches. And it usually operates at half the speed of the processor, so you can find the address in the level one. If you can't find the address in the level one cache, but find it in the level two cache, you typically waste one CPU cycle. Memory regular memory is much slower. I haven't checked specs recently, but you probably lose 20 to 50 cycles if you have to go out to memory, which also then brings in that memory location and its neighbors into the cache so that they are there the next time they're needed. So more cache means more capacity to hold more recently accessed memory locations. Obviously, when you bring a block, what we call a memory location and its neighbors into the cache, you're replacing some other set of memory locations that was already there. So a large cache will almost always lead to better performance. So that's there you go. That's, uh, that's as good as it gets. And, uh, and I think we can, we can fade the band back in here, John. Yeah. You good with
0: that? He's a CS type of guy. So, yeah, suffice to say, cash is complex, but the more the
1: better. But, yeah, so. I had to pull the band out because the band was making you stutter, John. You're not stuttering again, are you? Uh, bu- 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 <laughs> no? Oh, Good. Ah. Uh. Uh, we did the contact. We did the contact. I, do, you, do you want to tell them about your the uh, your PowerBook, John?
0: Uh, no. Okay. Well, I could. So I got a G4. Uh, actually, it was as far as I can tell, it was the last and fastest of the PowerBook G4s. 12-inch. Um, you know the highest end it was actually a result of my prior <laughs> machine um not getting fixed by apple and they shipped me this so it doesn't have apple care i believe it's a 2005 machine um you know 1.5 gigahertz g4 the biggest hard drive super drive all that great stuff uh got a couple extra batteries a couple extra power supplies um make an offer you know if you're interested in the machine, it's, uh, uh, I'll admit I had some issues, you know, with the MacBook Pro as being a larger machine, but, uh, you know, I can't manage two portables. So, if you're interested in a very well-cared-for, well-loved uh, PowerBook G4. 12-inch PowerBook G4. 12-inch, 1.5 gigs, uh, you know, I'll put a link uh, in the notes to the uh, spec database for it, but it's, uh, I think, the the fastest G4 they came out with. So, there you go.
1: Yeah, so I, just to just to read that again, it's a 1.5 gigahertz, 1.25 gigs of RAM, SuperDrive, 80 gig hard drive. I think I got that right, right, John? Yes, sir. Okay. Seems like on eBay they're going for like 750, 800 from what I was seeing. Uh, Make it up. with the with the extra RAM, uh, batteries and stuff. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, Yeah, that's it. Okay, Uh, Cashfly Hosting is the place providing all the bandwidth from which you download the podcast or through which you download the podcast. Michael Johnston, of course, of iPhone Alley has converted this show for your AAC interaction pleasure. The podcast marketplace includes the W1 from AudioEngineUSA.com, BB Edit from Barebones Software, one free download from Audible.com at Audible.com audiblepodcast.com slash macgeekgab PDF pen from Smile on My Mac and of course harman-etravel.com for all your travel needs and uh, that's it we've told them how to contact us 206-666-geek just in case and uh, I think we'll get this one in under an hour which given everything we had on the list is impressive wow (laughs) got anything else to tell them John before we uh, before we wrap this one up here hmm No Okay, good See, now we we pull in the little outro We fade it in And that's how the sausage is made, folks Ew (laughs) You tell him, John Don't get caught
2: made up.